please take your Bible and uh, turn to Revelation chapter 18. If you haven't got a Bible, hopefully the person next to you uh, does. I'm sure they won't mind lending it to you, letting you look on. Because uh, this is what we're particularly interested in, what the Bible uh, has to say. And uh, trusting that God would help us to understand. <clears throat> What, you don't have to answer the question, but what is an, an economist? <clears throat> what is an economist? I, <clears throat> I don't think we have any here. I have a few accountants, but uh, an economist is a trained professional paid to guess wrong about the economy. Apparently so. It's a tough job <clears throat> predicting the economic future. So what's the difference between an economist and a confused old man with Alzheimer's? The economist is the one with the calculator. First law of economists. For every economist, there exists an equal and opposite economist. And the second law of economists is they're both wrong. They say that economists were invented to make weather forecasters look good. Economists have been the butt of jokes over the years, but all jokes aside, many of us are curious about the current state of our national economy. I think most of us are concerned about budget deficits and high inflation and rising interest rates and the increasing costs of living. For many people, there's a real concern about just paying our bills. We are both curious and concerned because we want to know about the financial future. However, not, we're not just talking and we're not even just thinking about a national economy. We're interested in the current state of the world economy, about the stock market and conditions of world trade and oil prices and wars that affect supply and global commerce, dollar values against foreign currency. See, perhaps more than any other time in history, we live in a world of global economics. No longer are the economies of the world isolated national economies, but we're all linked together because it is a shrinking globe. It's a global village now because of foreign trade. It's all tied together. We have what amounts to as a singular global economy. And that's very fitting because that's exactly what Revelation 18 describes as being a major component of the final form of the Antichrist's kingdom just before the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now last Sunday evening we're in Revelation chapter 17 and we discovered that Babylon has two aspects. There's the religious aspect and there's also the commercial aspect. Religious Babylon in chapter 17 and commercial or economic Babylon in chapter 18. And last week, Pastor Brendan made a very, very important point about a comparison. Religious Babylon is a whore, Revelation 17 says, who stands in comparison and in contrast 
with the true church, which is a pure bride for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see her in Revelation chapter 19 and 21. Tonight we see another comparison and contrast. Commercial Babylon is a city which stands in comparison and contrast with what? The heavenly city, the new Jerusalem which is coming, mentioned in Revelation 21 and 22. The Antichrist is all about counterfeit and substitutes. What will the global economy under the Antichrist look like? Well, without question, it will be capitalistic. It'll be luxurious, materialistic, capitalistic world. In fact, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns at the second advent, the world will be pursuing capitalism with vengeance. We know this because this is exactly, precisely the picture of the kingdom of the Antichrist. The, the individual who rules the world just before the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ will set up a true kingdom of true prosperity. Without doubt, the Antichrist will be a remarkable leader. When you think about the terrible conditions upon the earth in the Great Tribulation period, death on a massive scale, disaster on a global scale, and under such circumstances then to create a prosperous world economy that generates incredible wealth, it's truly a remarkable achievement. No wonder all the world marvels after the beast. And yet his kingdom won't last. It will come crashing down. Babylon will fall. Of course, Babylon dates back to Genesis 11. It's a city that epitomized rebellion against God religiously and commercially when you think about their enterprise. Through its long history, Babylon has always been that, a symbol of rebellion against God. And it's the essence of the Antichrist's kingdom in the tribulation period, rebellion against God, religiously and commercially. Now, there's a lot of debate about end-time Babylon, whether it's a literal city within a literal country or whether it's just a figurative description of the essence of the Antichrist's kingdom. It's referred to as a city seven times in this chapter. That's fairly repetitive. And so if we accept the city as literal, it would be a very literal interpretation of this chapter. Does it refer to the literal city of Babylon, a city in modern-day Iraq, some Old Testament scriptures predict that Babylon would never be rebuilt. Babylon destroyed would never be rebuilt. But there are people that argue from the scriptures that the destruction of Babylon prophesied was not the destruction which has historically overtaken Babylon. They will allege that the prophecies against Babylon weren't literally fulfilled in history and that the fulfillment of scripture, the destruction of Babylon, is described for us here. So some Bible scholars argue. Peter used the word Babylon 
in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. The church that is at Babylon, elect together with you, salute you, as doth Marcus my son. Seeing that Peter was in a place he identified as Babylon, sending greetings to the brethren. And many scholars believe this is a reference, not to literal Babylon, but to the city of Rome. So is this talking about Rome in Revelation chapter 18? Or is the name Babylon used in Revelation 18 like it's used by Peter as a synonym for a, a wicked city, a Babylon-like city? Well, such details are not clearly revealed to us in Scripture. What is clear is that if this is a literal city, then the spirit of Babylon is not limited to the city. It certainly is at work in the world. It's in the world at work in the world today. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is the essence of the world system even now. And yet all of that will rise to a profound level in the tribulation period. They are the hallmarks of the Antichrist kingdom, regardless of the nature of his physical headquarters. But with that in mind, let's come to the text and see what the scripture text has to say. I hope you've got an outline sheet there. It's fairly comprehensive, but I think it is a helpful analysis of what we see here. First of all, the chapter begins with a revelation in verses 1 and 2. An angel with great authority and splendor announces Babylon's destruction. Verse 1, and after these things, John says, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lighted with his glory. He cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. Now the phrase there, after these things, it occurs quite frequently in the book of Revelation. It marks the beginning of a new vision. Now it's still addressing the general theme of the Antichrist empire, chapter 17, that focuses on the religious aspect. Now it's a new vision, chapter 18, it focuses on the commercial aspect. John saw another angel. He tells us three things about him. First of all, the angel came down from heaven with great power. Second, when he arrived, the earth was illuminated with his glory. The earth lit up at his glory. He's going to make a dramatic entrance on a darkened stage. If you think back, probably don't remember, if you think back to Revelation 16, the fifth bold judgment, the world was plunged into darkness. And into that darkness, this angel arrived. Everyone sees him. Not only does everyone see him, thirdly, the angel cried mightily with a strong voice so that no one is able to ignore him. Everyone hears him, everyone sees him. His message will add to the terror of this appearance. It will be a word of woe for the Antichrist and his followers. Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. And this is a fulfillment of the judgment of Babylon which was first predicted back in chapter 14 verse 8 now it's being carried out the phrase is fallen is fallen suggests a dual judgment first upon religious Babylon the harlot Revelation 17 and now upon commercial Babylon the great city in Revelation chapter 18 this thought of Dual judgment is amplified in verse 6, where God announces that Babylon will receive double 
for her many sins. We'll enlarge upon that in a moment. But let's secondly, let's consider the passage and see the reasons, the reasons why the city was destroyed. There are seven reasons given for God's judgment upon Babylon. First of all, it's become a den of demons, verse 2. Become the habitation of devils and the hold of every unclean spirit. The Bible tells us that the the demons are free to roam the atmosphere while others, others are bound. Yet in the tribulation period, we were told back in chapter 9, that at the sounding of the fifth trumpet... Thousands of demons are released from the abyss. And then again, same chapter, verses 13 to 16, at the sounding of the sixth trumpet, 200 million demons are released, it says, from the river Euphrates. And all of these released demons, together with the demons that uh, also freely roam the earth, will be, what's it say, verse 2, confined to Babylon. What's it say? Babylon will be the hold of every foul spirit and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Unclean and hateful represents heaven's view of them. Demon worship will have its home in end time Babylon as it has had a home in Babylon in the past. In Daniel's day, Babylon was the home of magicians and soothsayers and astrologers. These were all official advisors to the king. All of today's cults of Satanism and Spiritism and occultism and witchcraft and astrology will in the end times gravitate towards Babylon. It will become a centre. Modern science has proved itself a poor practitioner for the diseases of the soul and people are turning even today more and more to the occult world both in curiosity and credulity and in the future Babylon will be the natural home of every such cult the city will be haunted by evil spirits who congregate there in their millions Secondly, the city is filled with fornication, verse 3. Babylon's destruction is also because all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. The extent of Babylon's influence is here clearly stated. Like a harlot, she has wooed and won the nations by her flirtations. The people of the earth have drunk so eagerly from her intoxicating cup that they no longer have any power to resist. Very descriptive of the way that she behaves and the way that the world responds. It's a relationship based upon immoral principles. It's it's all based upon lust and self-interest with no regard to God and his principles. This is life in the city of Babylon. Fornication and just all, all the, the, the everything that that implies and every breaking of every principle and rule of God is what epitomizes this place. Thirdly, it is materialistic to the core. The merchants of the earth have waxen rich through the abundance of her delicacies. You can see her riches there 
in verses 12 to 14. A catalogue of opulence. It's a vivid picture of a great commercial city trafficking in every luxury that the heart could desire. Certainly this is you know, Old Testament economy. This is the world's vanity fair. It offers articles of adornment and display beautiful things to grace the mansions of the millionaires of the world. It deals in exotic spices and perfumes, in delicacies for the table, in provisions for banquets, in slaves, in the souls of men. These items were all common commodities in the ancient world. And they were the source of immense financial gain. Here they're representative of the great wealth of the Antichrist future commercial empire. All these things are th things that Babylon imported. Her demand for the world's goods was insatiable. Ever it clamoured for more and more materialistic to the core. Fourthly, its sins are as high as heaven, verse 5, for her sins have reached under heaven. And then the angel adds in verse 5 that God hath remembered her iniquities. God takes note of them. As he took note of them back in Genesis chapter 11, when he noted that first monument to man's sinful, prideful rebellion at the Tower of Babel, God noticed. As God also noticed in the days of Noah, men's sins reached unto heaven, as did the sins in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, as did the sins of Nineveh. And there comes a time when the sins of a nation or the sins of a city reach under heaven and cry aloud for God to act. And the sword of God's vengeance, though it slumbers long, it will move in God's time. It seems that God himself seems deaf, dumb and blind to what's going on in the earth often, but he misses nothing and suddenly he acts. Fifthly, it's totally proud and arrogant, verse 7. We see it in three ways in verse 7. First, she glorifies herself, self-glorification. Second, she, she pursues self-gratification. She lives deliciously, meaning luxuriously. Thirdly, she's guilty of self-sufficiency. For she said in her heart, I sit a queen, I am no widow, and shall see no sorrow. End time Babylon enjoys the good life. It will be the Laodicea of the cities of the world, rich and increased with goods, feeling no need of anything. It'll be the rich fool of the nations. I have much goods laid up for many years. I'll eat, drink and be merry. With a crown upon her head, with swelling confidence in her heart, this queen cities will mock the thought of judgment, or more likely, doesn't even entertain the thought. Like its master, Lucifer, who's lifted up with pride, it very soon will be brought down to the pits. Next, it's buying and selling human slaves. We hear a lot about human trafficking today. It's, I suppose it's always been. It is today. It will continue. 
to a level of great condemnation in the future. And then lastly, it deceives the nations and kills the saints. Final reason at the end of the chapter for Babylon's judgment is that her sorceries deceived all the nations. What sorceries is from the Greek word from which we get the English word pharmacy or pharmaceuticals. When the word is used in the New Testament, it refers to, to magic and to occult practices. In other words, Babylon's en entire hold upon the world will not be entirely due to her economic power, but also her occult influence, which results, John tells us here, in many, many things, but John tells us here, in the murderous, it results in the murderous slaughter of God's people, verse 24, for in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all that was slain upon the earth. Brethren, the world system has always been the enemy of the Christian. James makes this point in his epistle. He makes the point, let me paraphrase, he says, the world is not your friend says the world is not your friend these are the ones that kill christians these are the ones that persecute christians and you're trying to imitate them and you're trying to follow their ways you're trying to be respected by them and accepted from them. he said they're not your friends they don't have the same values at all they're anti-christian therefore god's judgment is upon it Therefore, God orders his people, don't be conformed to this world. Or in the case of the tribulation saints here, he says, leave the corruption of the city. Leave the corruption of the city. Come back to verse 4. Talks about the removal, verse 4. God's judgment is upon this commercially prosperous but morally bankrupt society. It's to be avoided. Another voice from heaven comes out and makes it clear. The angel proclaims, come out of her, my people. It's a call to God's people living in the tribulation times. The tribulation saints, it's a call to them to disentangle themselves from the world system. The world has ever been the enemy, the world, the flesh and the devil. It's going to be the same in the tribulation period. The tribulation saints still got to battle the flesh, still got to battle the devil, still the allure of the world is still there. It's, it's always there. It's never our friend. Christians of every age have had to heed the warning. 1 John 2, 15 to 17, love not the world and how easy it is for us to become fascinated with all the things that the world has to offer, like a person taking a sip of wine and then another one and another one and another one, the drink deepens. We find ourselves wanting more and more and more. The world system that opposes Christ has always been with us and we must be aware of its subtle influences. But the world system here satisfies the desires of the earth dwellers who follow the beast and reject the lamb. But worldly things never permanently satisfy God's people. They don't satisfy, they don't last. The love of pleasures and possessions is but an insidious form of idolatry. Demonic in origin, destructive in its outcome. In all ages, God's people have to separate themselves 
from that which is worldly, that which is anti-God. When God called Abraham, it was a call of separation. Get out from among your people. Get out of this country. Get away from these people. The call to Lot was also a call of separation. It's in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. God called him out. God separated the Jewish nation from Egypt. He warned them, don't go back. And today the church is commanded to separate itself from that which is ungodly. Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Come out from among them, be ye separate, saith the Lord, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. That doesn't mean that Christians think, should think themselves to be superior or pharisaical in their attitudes. Or we must withdraw from contact with people and treat them in a nasty way personally. Not at all. We are ambassadors of Christ. We're in the world, but we're not to be of the world, not to be pressed into this world's mold, which is anti-God and under God's judgment. We see that in point four. We read all about the retribution. The city is destroyed by God himself. In verse six, the angel now speaks to God. His call for vengeance on Babylon parallels the prayer of the, the, the martyred saints. Lord, how long, O Lord, how long until you enact vengeance? Chapter 6, verse 9. But now the time has come for God's vengeance to be enacted. The time has come for destruction. Notice the severity of the destruction. Verse 6. The angel asked that God reward her even as she rewarded you and double unto her double according to her works. The angel requests that God give back to Babylon double unto her according to her works with the cup which she hath, which she hath filled to her double. Literally it reads double the double thing. Double the double things. It's a request that Babylon's punishment fit her crimes. Double has been her iniquity. Therefore, double should be her punishment. It's not saying that God will give her double that she deserves. You know, she's so bad she gets double punishment. It's not saying that. She is so bad she's done doubly bad. Therefore, the judgment should be doubly severe. Same idea is in verse 7. The angel calls on God to enact complete vengeance on Babylon. How much she hath glorified herself and lived deliciously, so much torment and sorrow give her. How much, the phrase is how much and so much. How much, so much is a call to match the punishment to the crime. That's the biblical principle of justice. For her sin, Babylon is to receive, what's it say? Torment and sorrow. Greek word for torment literally means torture. The word for sorrow refers to grief that the torture produces. Hell, brethren, will be a place both of unimaginable torment and crushing sorrow. The grief. Verse 8 says, Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judgeth 
her. Notice the suddenness of this destruction. The judgment from heaven destroys the city in a single moment. Therefore, verse 8, therefore shall her plagues come in one day. Look at verse 10 at the end of the verse. For in one hour is thy judgment come. Verse 17 at the beginning. For in one hour so great riches is come to naught. The end of verse 19. For in one hour is she made desolate. She boasted, I sit as the queen, I shall see no sorrow. But her sorrow comes upon her suddenly. Economies can fail very suddenly. God is slow to act. He lets sin go and grow without seeming to do much about it. But sooner or later, when the time comes to act, God acts in wrath. When the iniquities of the Amorites are full, God said, then he will act. God said to Abraham, it'll take a long time. It'll be a long time. But I'm not going to punish the Amorites for their wickedness until they reach a certain amount of fullness. Same principles apply to the judgment of Babylon. The entire system, world system of wickedness, it continues for a long time. But let no one be deceived. All the sins are rising up to the Lord's. God's wrath will be suddenly revealed. They are, as it says in Romans chapter 2, treasuring up wrath against the day of wrath and the righteous judgment of God. God's anger will eventually, suddenly fall. Notice the reaction to the sudden destruction of Babylon. There are two basic reactions to the fall of Babylon and they're opposite one from the other. There are those that are full of remorse and there are those who rejoice. The great remorse is by those who are unsaved. Those who have profited from the city's influence and trade and power. Those who have benefited and enjoyed the city's wickedness and its wealth. And under that kind of, that group of people, three specific groups are described. Verse 9, there's the kings of the earth. Verse 9, there's the merchants of the earth. And in verse 17, there's the shipmasters, the mariners of the earth or by the sea. And these three groups are easily recognisable by what they cry out. Verse 10. Standing afar off, the fear of her torment, saying, This is the kings of the earth. They say, Alas, alas, for the great city of Babylon. In verse 16. The merchants say in verse 16, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen. And then in verse, where is it? Verse 19, there the, the shipmasters, the mariners, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city. 
Alas, alas is a expression denoting intense disappointment, consternation. It's an exclamation of sorrow and regret. That's what they cry, but why do they cry it in this way? Because their source of gain has taken away. Because there's nothing left to buy, there's no one left to buy their commodities. In verse 9, the first people to cry out are the leaders, the kings of the earth. This group no doubt includes the, the ten kings who rule with the Antichrist under his authority in his end time confederation as well as the rest of the world's leaders under them they greet the news of Babylon's destruction with shock and dismay the destruction of Antichrist economic power strikes a fight a, a, a fatal blow to their whole empire verse 11 tells us about the merchants the business leaders they weep over Babylon What's it say, verse 11? For no man buyeth their merchandise anymore. The destruction of the Antichrist capital will end any semblance of normality on a devastated planet. Whatever economic activity will have been in place at that time will come to a halt. Verse 14, they continue their lament. They address Babylon directly, verse 14. The fruits that thy soul lusted after are departed from thee, and all things which are dainty and goodly are departed from thee, and thou shalt find them no more at all. All the cities, luxurious possessions, all passed away. The words found no more at all translate a double negative in the Greek text, strongest negative in the Greek language. It indicates that all of those items will be never found again. In verses 15 through 17, the merchants stand at a distance because of fear of her torment, wailing, weeping and wailing. Verse 16, saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed with fine linen and purple and scarlet, decked with gold and precious stones and pearls for in one hour. So great riches is come to Morton to naught. They weep and they mourn not out of emotional sympathy for the city, but because they have been stripped of every key source of their finance. These greedy merchants are a classic illustration of those who in all times have gained the world but lose their own soul. And the last to bemoan the fall of Babylon are these vast shipping companies, verses 17 through 19. All the transporters of merchandise must shut down their operations because the world's commercial centre has been destroyed. The transport companies will have made their money by the expansion and the operation of Babylon. They, they lose everything. Business is at a standstill. There's no one buying or selling. But the lament of the kings and the merchants and the mariners is purely selfish the agony of soul which they experience comes from the fact that the source of their wealth has absolutely col collapsed they're bewailing their own losses they're bewailing their own loss of money the defunct markets this is the great remorse by the unsaved 
And yet there's great rejoicing by the saints. Verse 20 says, Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. Those in heaven rejoice. You know, I find it a matter of great interest that people in, in heaven are interested in what's going on on the earth. Saints of all ages here told to rejoice over this. The holy apostles, Peter and Paul and James and John, all the other apostles have been waiting for this day. As have all the prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Daniel, all the other prophets have long time been waiting for fulfillment of their own words. And now they can rejoice that their prophecies are being carried out to the full. Heaven provides a completely different perspective than the Antichrist's earthly followers. And then the angel who began speaking in verse 4 now calls on those in heaven to rejoice over Babylon's fall, for God hath avenged you on her. The day of God's vengeance has come. It's written. Okay, it's written in the scripture, and this day the scripture is fulfilled. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. He's been saying it a long time. I will repay. Today is payday. God cannot be silent forever and allow Babylon's abominations to continue. Iniquity and wickedness and violence cannot be tolerated forever without divine intervention. And heaven rejoices finally. The day of God's vengeance is come. Heaven rejoices because now it's a triumph of righteousness. Heaven rejoices because this is leading up to the coming, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the arrival of his kingdom upon the earth. Now some might object to the attitude of rejoicing over the judgments of so many people. It's true that such an attitude is a far cry from that which we're exalted to do in forgiving our enemies and praying for those that despitefully use us and persecute us. However, there's a couple of things here that we would do well to remember. Firstly, the actions here and the attitudes here are ordered by God and not man. And therefore, we don't have right to question. Secondly, what we see here is the, the triumphing of God over evil. There's no personal bitterness or malice here, but a deep and sincere devotion to the holiness of God. And there should always be a note of rejoicing amongst God's people when we see God triumphing over evil. Thirdly, this is an acknowledgement that the day of grace has come to an end. And today every Christian is keenly aware that the fact of our salvation is all of grace. We do not deserve to be saved and there but for the grace of God go we. And whilst we do and can rejoice in the triumph of God over evil, we also, knowing the terror of the Lord, we shrink from the thought of any man coming under the condemnation of a holy God. And this is what the Bible means for us when we think about these sorts of things and we rejoice with trembling. Very weighty matters here. 
Sixthly, we see the results of God's judgment. The city disappears from the face of the earth. Firstly, I want you to note the violence of Babylon's fall, verse 21. And the mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall the great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. Hurling a great millstone into the sea symbolizes the violent destruction of Babylon. I think it's very easy to picture the scene. Big, big stone thrown into the water. It disappears at the surface. The ripples go out. Waters close over it. It's gone. Never to be seen again. Mark well the words, no more at all. And note also how often the words, no more, no more, no more, are sounded through the dirge that follows. Verse 22 and 23 talk about the vastness of Babylon's fall. For the voice of the harpers and musicians and of pipers and of trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee. And no craftsman of whatsoever craft he be shall be found any more in thee. And the sound of the millstone shall be heard no more at all in thee. And the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee. And the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. The doom is complete. So complete will be Babylon's destruction that none of the normal activities of life take place. No music, no working, no preparing of food, no light, no marriage. Curtain comes down forever on this city of sin. And the language used here is very similar to a legal document, as though God is covering the pronouncement from every possible angle, leaves no loopholes. Babylon shall never rise again, justly so. Justly so. And that's the final point that rounds out the chapter. Note the validity of Babylon's fall, verse 23, halfway through. For the merchants were great men of the earth, for by thy sorceries were all nations deceived. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all that was slain upon the earth. The pride, the presumption, the perversity of Babylon make her, final, make her the final depository of the sins of the world. She was the control center upon the earth to organize and to promote and to extend the Antichrist's kingdom, his godless policies, his iniquity, his oppression, his persecution. And Babylon's fall is just. And with religious Babylon and commercial Babylon now in ruins, the stage is now set the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to come and to rule and to reign to establish his righteous kingdom his eternal kingdom we'll see that in chapter 19 brethren this is the future yet the spirit of antichrist is presently at work that's one of John's major messages 
Therefore he warns us in the epistles, as he warned, he warned the first century Christians, he so warns us today, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. And the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. We're in the world, brethren, but not of it. Our role in the world is to be representatives of Christ. In Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 18, he says to the Father, As thou hast sent me into the world, even so send I them into the world. As. It's the dominant idea that conveys the intent. As you, Father, as you sent me into the world, in the same way I send them into the world. I'm here as your ambassador. I'm here as your representative. I'm here with the message of salvation. So I send them as ambassadors and representatives with the message of salvation. This was my role in the world. This is their role in the world. To be ambassadors for Christ. We're God's people. We're not of this world's system. And when professing Christians align themselves with the world, any of its worldly societies, whether it be for our own shameful enjoyment or whether it be for the pretense that we're going there as being a testimony, attempt to, to change the world, we, we violate a plain teaching of the word of God. The reason why is plain. Her sins have reached under heaven. God hath remembered her iniquities. Babel's tower of stones, Genesis 11, did not reach under heaven as they hoped, but her sins did. God says to his own people, I'll forgive their iniquity. Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. But the sins of unchanging and unrepentant Babylon will he remember and he will punish. The day of reckoning is coming. This is the fate of Babylon. What does the word of the Lord say? Come ye out from among her, my people. Be not partaker of her sins. Come out from her that you might go back to her as an ambassador for Christ. Holding High, the word of life, the, the light of the gospel. This is our role in these days. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given it to us and in your word you reveal to us where all history is heading, uh, how it will climax, Father, we thank you for the fact that we don't have to be in the dark concerning these things. Lord, not everything is clear to us, not everything, but we certainly have enough. There's enough for us plainly in the scriptures, for us to see where things are headed, what the attitudes are, and certainly what our responses should be. And Lord, I do pray that you help us to uh, discern the times. Uh, Lord, I pray that you forgive us for those times when we do get caught up 
in the world's system, the world's values. We've sometimes developed, developed appetites for things that we shouldn't. And Lord, I pray that you might help us to wean us off the things of the world. That we might uh, truly be the people of God uh, in these days. Our Lord, help us to see our role and responsibility very, very clearly. Help us to stand firm for Christ. Help us to uh, show and demonstrate and to speak the love of God uh, at all times. But Lord, uh, help us to do so as those that keep themselves pure and unspotted from the world. I pray that you'd help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our final hymn.